0: I want to welcome you, Professor Ron Heifitz, to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast that we have here at the Minneapolis Foundation. I'm a big fan. I have been talking about uh, my favorite leadership book, Leadership on the Line, for months. I've been posting about it. It's definitely a resource in my toolbox. And then one day I said, huh, I wonder if he'll just give me, <laughs> give me the opportunity to be in conversation. And so I appreciate you joining me today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be with you, Shonda. I admire the work that you've done over the course of your life, uh, including raising four boys, It's uh, which is a huge task in and of itself, particularly, you know, in our time. So it's a real pleasure to get to be with you and to uh, have a conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, um, I'm sitting here in Minneapolis. Yeah. Where there has been so much unrest that, um, You know, with the pandemic that we're all faced with, we have seen um, real awareness or insight into the level of disparities that are existing in all of our systems that we've been talking about for a very long time. But it feels like it's, um, you know, that that we have like collectively put on some new glasses and we're seeing things um, differently. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think you you spoke to it like as a mom, you know, as someone who's worked in community, that's from community, all these things um, that are coming together in a very interesting sort of convergence that's putting me in a place of awareness of my own leadership. What does it mean to lead in these very tough times? What's required? Um, And so I think I mentioned that, you know, not only do I think that you would be great to uh, listen to for the rest of our listeners, but I'm um, just consider this somewhat my, my ther my therapy time, my leadership therapy time, so I wouldn't mind just jumping in on just what are you like what is the leadership challenge that we're faced with right now, and you've talked a lot about adaptive and technical leadership and moments of change, and I'm curious on what your insights are
1: yeah it's a it's a momentous time uh the crisis itself uh generates particular requirements for leadership, particular needs and demands. Um, crises do that. And I have found it useful to divide crises into uh, phases. Uh, and the, the simplest division is between the acute emergency phase and the uh, ad- adaptive problem-solving phase. And, uh, and my model here is, because I started in medicine, my model here is medicine. You know, the job in an emergency room is to sort of stabilize the patient and buy time to then work the underlying problems. Um, many times crises reveal underlying problems that have been there all along and some people have cared a lot about, but they find it finally draws generalized urgency and generalized attention to those underlying problems that are revealed in the crisis. Uh, and one has to use the acute emergency phase to do diagnostic work, to identify and, and and then figure out what's the right way to frame and mobilize the energy generated by the crisis when you get to the adaptive phase, after you've stabilized the situation, to then do the adaptive work required of the, of the society uh, that then is going to take a, often a long time because adaptive work takes time. It takes time to change a political culture. It takes time to change hearts and minds and to change institutions. Um, so crises provide uh as 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 we all know from Chinese script, the Chinese script for crisis is a combination of danger and opportunity and it is a dangerous time. People are dying uh, uh terribly, and people are dying disproportionately who are uh poor poor, and vulnerable or living in dense more density density in in cities uh, or nursing homes and and so forth so it's a terribly dangerous time, but it's also the opportunity to Draw attention now to the uh, to the uh, to critical challenges that have festered for forever uh, in our country in the United States the inequity uh, the racial inequity in particular has been festering for um, hundreds of years i uh, recently uh, um, my wife and I decided to go back and and relearn american history so a couple of years ago. Um, uh, we sat in on uh, one of my colleagues' courses at Harvard. Cornell West teaches a course in Introduction to African American Studies. And we sat in on the course. We did most of the readings. I had some wonderful conversations. He came and visited my class, you know, after I had spent this term in his. And, uh, and we, it was illuminating. I, I had no idea how little I really understood my own American history, how badly it had been taught and uh and how the image that somehow uh it was over with the civil war was uh, a complete uh distortion of the of the history that the the civil war simply created a new set of conditions the and those great amendments the 13th 14th and 15th amendments created new aspirations they were supposed to create new realities but actually they just created new conditions around which um, the underlying um, uh, dominant cultures in the society created workarounds, and it, it spent the next hundred years creating workarounds around the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, and we're seeing those workarounds continue to this day. In, in, in as we approach election season, in voter suppression techniques that have been deployed for for uh, for hundred and fifty years. Since the uh, end of reconstruction in eighteen seventy so um, uh, so uh, the uh, emergency phase of this crisis has revealed these underlying uh, vulnerabilities um, It's kind of like in uh, in the human body a a new threat like this new virus uh. Create it it reveals a vulnerability in the in the body that the body hasn't seen this before, so now it's much Mm -hmm. more vulnerable. Um, And in the same way, adaptive pressures or adaptive challenges on a community uh, also reveal the underlying vulnerabilities of that culture. And we can see that the United States is doing much poorer. Around the United, uh, if you compare it with other countries in the world, it's doing a great deal poorer, much worse than many other countries in regard to fighting this disease. Our uh, mortality rate is is uh, is extraordinarily high um, compared to an awful lot of other countries, and certainly the countries we generally usually compare ourselves with the the economically um, sophisticated, you know, robust uh, economies. Um, We're doing much worse than just about all of them. Um, So why is that? Well, the virus has revealed a vulnerability in our own political culture, in our own economic culture. Uh, the, The distrust that's rampant in American society, the distrust in authoritative institutions, makes it nearly impossible for anybody in government to say, this is what we need to do. These are the new conditions. Until there's a vaccine, this isn't going away. You know, and and God willing, there'll be a good vaccine that will make it all go away. But right now, it isn't going away, so we're going to have to adapt to this context. And there's going to be a lot of work we need to do in this acute emergency phase. To uh, to figure out how to um, limit the damage and keep people afloat, keep people in their apartments, you know, keep people from starving, keep people to be able to feed their families. And now, as school approaches, you know. how to how to educate children who most of the time are going to have to stay at home. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, so I have found it useful then to view this crisis in these two phases. Now one more thing before I I I uh, let you pitch me a, a question uh, <laughs> or make uh, the, this crisis is unusual because usually the acute emergency phase is short. You know, you, you sort of stabilize the situation and then the danger is that you're going to just move on because you've brought things back to normal. So people forget about the underlying challenges that were revealed and don't end up doing the adaptive work they need to do. You know, um, uh, and so the but there is opportunity to do that work if you if you have the leadership that will uh Keep the level of tension uh, not at a fever pitch, but keep the disequilibrium high enough in the community that it continues to create a sense of urgency, that we can't relax until we address these underlying issues. Yeah. But this crisis has a very long acute emergency phase. It's, it's again, going to last for a year or more until there's a vaccine that's generally in in our bodies. And generates uh, um, herd immunity. So uh, there's an enormous amount of adaptation required even in this acute emergency phase. We can't simply pull off the shelf our usual means to address the crisis and stabilize the situation. Uh, Now, what we see a lot is in a crisis, there's an incredible amount of pressure on authority figures, particularly in government, particularly, but also in business, to restore equilibrium immediately. Yeah. You know, just get things back to normal. And so we're seeing uh, a huge variety of, of responses to the, this crisis. We're seeing people provide real leadership in stepping into the crisis, being honest with people, and calling forth people's resourcefulness to meet the challenge. And then figuring out, in an emergency response, how are we going to keep people afloat and stabilize and, uh, the, uh, the situation for people in their lives? But we're also seeing an awful lot of people who succumb to the pressures to provide quick and easy answers, to provide the illusion that we can lock down for two months and then go back to our lives like it's disappeared. Uh, we knew back in March that the moment you open up again, you're going to, the virus is going to start to propagate again. So unless you're willing to open up and close down, open up and close down in waves, and have prepared people for that eventuality, you know, um, it's a very short-sighted thing in politics to provide people with short-term easy answers because ultimately they're gonna discover that you misled them, that you didn't prepare them properly. They may cheer you on initially because you tell them what they wanna hear, but over time, they're going to get upset because they realize you didn't really do your job so leadership in a crisis is a pretty dangerous thing because you're asking then people to step into the realities both the realities that they need to uh, adapt to in the acutely to lock down and and figure out then how are they going to support themselves and their children through this time and then also how are you going to get people to face the music of the of the deeper challenges that are revealed in the crisis as is uh in our society the racism in our society in other countries it's other forms of inequity that have been revealed in this crisis
0: yeah there's there's so many um directions that my head is going um with that i think um my my i guess my first thought is when you are in a crisis and it's external, right? You have a responsibility because something happened over there to come in. Like in the example, um, in the emergency room, it's someone else that is experiencing something. And then you go and you look at what's underlying. Yeah, We have a pandemic in which we were also being impacted by the crisis that we are trying to figure out how to lead through. Yes, and um, and the issue of race is the same thing, regardless if you're you're black like I am, or you know Jewish, or you know any of you know white. That we're all sitting in some level of crisis related to the race relations that are happening right now. And so, is there a different sort of um, response or understanding of what leadership looks like when your you yourself is impacted by what's occurring.
1: Yes, uh, it's a really important qu- question you're raising, and I think about it as uh, if your job is to hold other people through their uh, distress and to buffer the distress and to speak to their pains with heart and to be present to them so they feel held, not abandoned, and and, and so that you're reducing the panic and keeping people, even though they're in a heightened state of disequilibrium, you're still keeping them uh, in the work of life and in the work of adapting to the situation. Uh, If you're going to be holding people, somebody's got to be holding you, too, Mm -hmm. because you're in it, too. You know, um, um, I, I, I have a a boy and a girl who are now, you know, thirty, thirty and thirty two years old, and and um, and they worry about me because you know I'm their dad and I'm an older guy, and and I worry about them. How are they doing? And and so forth. And so, uh, uh, so there are ways in which somebody practicing leadership, where they themselves are in the midst of it. Um, Need to deploy certain uh, disciplines to hold themselves so that they can distinguish, so that their heart and mind, so that their mind is clear and their heart is open to being able to keep their attention focused on what do the people need from me today? And how do I stay flexible so that day to day I can keep adjusting and mid course correcting and uh, as the situation continues to evolve. Uh, So three basic techniques uh, or means, uh, and uh, this is ancient wisdom, not my own particular, but three basic ways in which I think people can hold themselves and need to attend to themselves uh, is, uh, first of all, I think we need confidants, not just allies who are in it with us, who are kind of comrades in arms, but we need people who we can talk to and pour our heart out with where we safe places, safe people with whom we can be messy, where we can talk about our own anxieties and our own fears. Uh, because uh, if you're holding a community's and buffering a community's uh, distress, um, you can speak to some degree about your own, but you also have to radiate confidence and poise.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so you need your own place uh, where a group of people with whom you can not have to be poised. You know, where and, and who can help put you back together again at the end of the day when you feel all broken apart. Um, people who care more about you than the issue that you're working on. Uh, so there's no competing loyalty, you know, for them in being able to take in everything that you may be feeling or thinking. We need confidants. Uh, and then sec- and second that we need sanctuaries. We need places, actual locations where we can go to hear ourselves think. And I'm not promoting any particular sanctuary. It could be, you know, uh, uh, a house of worship and and with COVID and maybe it's an online, you know, way of of worshiping in community uh, collectively. Uh, but it could simply be uh, a room in one's house where you meditate, or it could be a park where you uh, routinely go and a park bench where you sit and contemplate, or it could be, um, uh, the gym you know could be a uh, a sanctuary for some people. Um, other people would go to the local bar and watch you know uh, yellow liquid uh floating in ice <laughs> uh, ice floating in that yellow that might be their sanctuary um and some of our sanctuaries have been constrained you know by the by the restrictions on collective uh um, social gathering but nevertheless. We need sanctuaries, and people who are going to lead through this time and hold other people through this time need places where they can step out of the sort of get on the balcony, get off the dance floor you know where things are moving so fast and uh, and the music's so intense and to be able to get recentered and then finally, we need regular practices uh, and uh, these practices could be um, poetry or playing music or doing art, or it could be journaling, or it could be you know, a particular uh, uh, walk that you take routinely, um, but regular sort of daily practices that kind of help keep you centered. One of the uh, hazards of, of leadership, particularly in time of crisis, is that uh, people treat these um, three devices, uh, confidants, sanctuaries, and practices as luxuries. They're expendable. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have time right now to have tea with that friend on Tuesday morning, you know, or coffee, or breakfast, or I don't have time to to pray, or write poetry, or 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 read, um, or or I don't have time to go take a walk. But uh, that's that may keep you going. If you, but this is a long crisis. I mean, if if this were gonna be over in two or three weeks, you might be able to keep running on fumes. You know, for uh, for a few weeks, but uh, but leadership's going to be needed for uh, for the next uh, at least the next 12 to 18 months, holding people through ongoing changes in the in how they're having to deal with the challenges. You know, when winter comes, where you're living uh, up in Minneapolis, uh, it would be foolhardy to not buy a winter coat. Yeah. You know, but uh, countless people practice leadership without keeping their sanctuaries and their confidants and their practices intact. You know, uh, don't lead if you're not going to also take care of yourself well enough to be able to then do your job properly. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't do
0: your job if you're going to be at wit's end. Yeah. Can we talk about the practice number two? And this is, this is really good stuff in that um, getting on the balcony and it, it it seems, and you mentioned that there are people that are just moving into action and kind of staying in this emergency phase. And it, it seems to me that moving to that balcony space is actually really hard for a lot of people to do, to, to get up, to look at, you know, to have a different perspective, to have time to reflect, um, and to create sound strategy. And so, you know, if we dug a little bit there, do you have Um, any advising for folks that are like, man, I'm trying, I think I'm on the balcony. I'm trying to get there. I'm I'm in a a pattern. Um, Do you have advice on how to, how to get to that balcony space and what that might look like?
1: Yeah. The three uh, elements that I uh, just um, Mm -hmm. probably reminded people of because everybody knows these uh, they're It will help you get on the balcony but then you have from the balcony one needs a framework of questions Mm -hmm. to ask in order to interpret what's happening on the playing field or what's happening you know on the on the dance floor uh, whichever metaphor you prefer Uh, one needs to be able to interpret what's going on you know because what's going on is pretty complicated but so one needs ways to to assess what 's going on, so that you can then when you get back back on the dance floor and start moving again, you can your next action your your correct your next corrective action is adaptive to what you're seeing and uh, and what people need so desperately are um, positive frames to help them understand what they're going through. One needs a narrative that helps people understand. That this is I understand what you're going through. Now here's here's how I understand the what we're up against now. And revising that frame and and figuring out then which frame is going to work for which segment of my community? Because communities are heterogeneous and they need different different framings for different segments of the community. And and how will I do that? And then how will I knit people together to be engaging one another across Differences and across boundaries. Um, uh, what structures can I use to begin to get people who are uh, um, passionately uh, hurt, passionately angry, um, and uh, but also locked into a point of view? How do I get? How do I help them? How do I develop a structure and a set of processes, a ways of engaging each other to catalyze? learning across those boundaries. Uh, so those are those are all questions one asks oneself from the balcony over and over and over again. And the answers will be a little bit different, you know, week to week.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, Dwight Eisenhower said, uh, I never could have gotten onto the beaches of Normandy without a plan. And the moment I hit the beach, I had to discard the plan. And then as president, he said, uh, uh planning is invaluable and plans are worthless. <laughs> because he knew that the moment you start moving, you know, you gotta you gotta keep getting back on the balcony and ask what's really going on here? What am I missing?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Who am I missing? How did yeah, that and I
3: think, work?
1: And, yeah. and, and then what's the corrective next step?
0: Yeah, I mean I think when you said, you know, like week to week, where's where we might feel like getting to the balcony might be like a quarterly exercise. <laughs> Uh, but it feels like it's a fluid exercise in which you're constantly moving from the dance floor to the balcony um, yeah. in, in the somewhat of a rhythm. And that I think that's the practice that you're encouraging. Right. Um, and that you're reinforcing is that it actually um, is an interconnected practice of being in the work, stepping back, assessing, adjusting and then getting back in. And yeah. without that, what you're doing is only staying in an emergency response that is simply not sustainable. for long-term crisis
3: right exactly that's right yeah that's right
0: so the other piece that um you know kind of in your opening that you raised was one of race and it feels as though um or i would say and many would say is that um you know america is kind of coming to this reckoning place um especially around um you know the most notable thing that we're going through now is you know George Floyd, the aftermath, Jacob Blake, and the many other countless uh many 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 countless not all on video um you know it's disheartening to to for me to to know that um you know almost if it's it's not captured, the words aren't believed, and I think that's part of the reckoning that we're coming to, but you know when you are looking at leadership and adapting and um, the change that is required when you insert the inequitable ways in which our systems have been working, it feels like there is a power shifting or something that is the distribution of power, the distrust of our systems that are all coming forward right now, and I'm wondering what perspectives you might have on you know even some of your own insights that you shared around really learning. Sort of American history from a new way because it's been so erased, yeah uh, and now we're now we're kind of coming to terms with it, and I certainly hope that this isn't a short term awareness but long term strategies that help move us
1: yes I, I i I can speak less knowledgeably about and and also I think less reliably or or it would be presumptuous for me to talk about what Black or people of color should do in mobilizing. I mean, from a leadership perspective, of course, I have perspectives on what's working and not working about strategies of action, and I um, and and so I, I would say about the people in the movements that um, it it's a mistake to get stuck on the dance floor. Mm. You know, you want to get back to the balcony and ask, okay, what have we learned now? from our initial initiatives and our initial framing of the problem in the first weeks or the first months and, and how it's being absorbed. Because a movement doesn't do any good if it doesn't generate, if it's not generative in the, in the community of other people. You know, because the, the people you're trying to lead are the people who give you no authority. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to lead your own people only. You are trying to mobilize your own people to have voice and to realize that they don't have to be in despair and that they can do something. But you're also trying to target people in the white community who, who, are, uh, who are everything from hostile to, to, um, to supportive and a lot of indifference in between. So if that's the target audience, then one has to keep stepping back on the balcony and ask, okay, what impact am I having into that community? and And over the course of the last months, there was an enormously positive impact, a surprisingly positive impact. I think most of us were really surprised to see the degree to which uh, um, people all across the the political spectrum and the um, the ethnic spectrum from you know uh, uh, across people's uh, came together to support the Proposition that Black lives matter and need to matter for a change, finally, uh, compared to all other lives, and uh, rather than being discounted as they have been discounted since uh, uh, for 400 years. So to step back on the balcony, you have to then take corrective action. How's it playing? Wow, I'm beginning to lose. I'm beginning to lose some of that support. Other ways of framing the problem are now beginning to take hold and pull those people away from us. You know, that instead of having engaged them in in rethinking what they're about, you know, we're beginning to lose them. So maybe we need now to shift our focus or shift our framing because the framing itself may be problematic. And that's why I refer to Eisenhower because that ability to be adaptive to the changing context and to keep taking corrective action you know, to move from version 1.1 to 1.2 to 1.3 is really necessary in leadership. That's it, leadership is an improvisational art. It's not really playing off a score of of written classical music. You know, you're playing off of structures, but you have got to improvise. So if, if people in movements sometimes get stuck on the dance floor and they keep singing the same song over and over again, losing. You know, and they're winning for a while, but then they start losing, and they can't figure out why they're losing, so they just sing harder, you know um mm-hmm. rather than adjusting the song and you know creating some some new refrains and new framings so that that's what I would have to say into the movement community, which is primarily being led not by white people but by black people and other peoples of color uh uh that I think what we're seeing um is that there's a real need for strategic assessment of uh, our initial success and, and how, can we, how can we continue to build, build our wider coalition, our more inclusive coalition, um, across the white-black boundary in the United States uh, to um, begin to change hearts and minds. Um, and, I, and I think there's that need for strategic reassessment right now.
0: Yeah, and you said that um, you might be able to weigh in more on some strategies of action, and and that's a really good um, perspective, as I was, you know, thinking while you were talking that a lot of the actions are pointed towards the police departments or to the mayors or to the unions, but I think part of the point is, is how do you build the base to sustain it so that people are acting in, making decisions, voting differently? Right um and yes i could see that are there other strategies of actions that you would share
1: yeah i think it's really important to, to begin to figure out
3: um what's the work of white people and uh and and i think that it's uh as with all adaptive work where you're trying to build
1: new capacity in people there are three basic tasks, Uh, we see this in nature, in the adaptability of of, uh, life forms um, in evolution. And the three basic tasks are, what's the cultural DNA that we wanna conserve? What's precious and essential in our way of life that we wanna hold on to? What from our history and tradition is valuable and we want to sustain and maintain and renew? And then, uh, and, and with truly transformative change, it has to be adaptive, which means it has to take root in the, in the culture and the history of a people. Otherwise it'll just generate immunity and it may be a short term revolution, but within a generation or two, it'll get spit out. Uh, so uh, the, the first task is identifying what we wanna conserve. The second task is what do we need to give up? what in our cultural DNA is no longer serviceable? Or if we may have even thought it was serviceable in the past, but even now, looking back in history, it wasn't serviceable, you know, and and it's got to be discarded. And that may simply be a small percentage of the overall cultural DNA, but nevertheless, for some people, it's an extremely significant set of losses. And the losses really matter. People will rather die or kill, than have to sustain those losses. Um, uh, and then the third task is innovation. What innovations? What new ways of thinking and working and un- organizing life will enable us to take the very best of our history into the future? Will enable us to carry our the best of our identity you know, into the future so that we can thrive in an ongoing uh, changing environment? Now, adaptive challenges in nature are usually exogenous. That is, they come from outside. You know, the ecosystem changes. The climate changes, or a new predator emerges, or a new virus emerges. You know, humanity is facing an exogenous, an externally generated adaptive pressure by the virus. But in human societies, you also get endogenously generated adaptive challenges as people inside the society call forth in the society a need to reckon with the internal contradictions in the value system of that society. And, and, and who finally get enough of a voice to draw attention of the, um, uh, of the uh, dominant coalitions in the society. And, and say to those dominant coalitions, you say you stand for this, but yet you live this way. And by pointing out these internal contradictions, um, generating a dynamism towards cha- uh, getting people to move, to realize uh, their aspirations, their orienting values um, more fully. So that when, when, um, uh, uh, Kamala Harris or or Barack Obama speak about towards a more perfect union. They're really speaking about uh, a deep American construct. You know, Abraham Lincoln spoke in the same kinds of words. And and the American experiment, the American aspiration is a a shared aspiration. So when Martin Luther King said in 63, uh, I have a dream it wasn't his own dream because his very next phrase was i have a dream a dream deeply rooted in the american dream and what gave it purchase was the was its conservative nature he wasn't talking about change actually he was talking about realizing what was fundamental in our value set that had not yet been realized so the um uh so leadership then isn't only about change. It's about also identifying what shouldn't be changed. Mm. And, 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 and so when people use a phrase like defund the police, it's framed in a negative way rather than here's what we ought to achieve as a community, you know, better education for our children, better health systems, you know, for our families, uh, better houses for, for all of us to live in. And so forth, you know, more equal opportunity, which is a which is a an old aspiration in America. That's not a change, actually. That's a that's a conservative value. So so when I think then about what is the work
3: of white people? Um,
1: then we have to understand what is. What are we asking white people to give up? And uh, if you're asking people to sustain losses and adaptive work often requires people to sustain losses, we have to uh, then have a lot of respect for the pains of change that we're asking people to sustain. And uh, uh, so uh, as a diagnostic matter in leadership, one needs to then try to disaggregate and analyze what are the losses that we're asking? Like, what is the ask into the white community? And it's actually a very significant ask. Um, and and the more we come to understand the nature of that ask, the better we're gonna be, more skilled we're gonna be at making that ask in a way that is heartful and has compassion and real curiosity to understand the complexity of those losses and of the journey that you're asking white people to go on in innovating and losing, but also conserving what's still fundamentally essential in their um, identity and in their uh, value set. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about what then is the work of white people? What are these kinds of losses we're asking white people to sustain? And it's not just a loss of power. You know, uh, uh, I think when we're angry, at an opposing faction, uh, we tend to two-dimensionalize them. Mm -hmm. And then our strategies for engaging them tend to be ineffective because uh, we don't really understand what we're asking of them. Um, So uh, what are we asking white people to do? Well, here's three different kinds, buckets of losses. One bucket of losses are direct material losses. And uh, power is a form of that loss. Wealth is a power, is a form of a direct material loss. Social significance, Mm. um, uh, a sense of status, uh, those are all kind of direct losses. Uh, But even more significant than the direct losses are these other two forms of loss. The most significant form of loss is, is loyalty. Because when you're asking a white person to uh, to begin to examine the contradiction in their value set, you know, you do believe that we're all children of God, so how come you're acting this way? Or you really do believe America ought to be a land of equal opportunity, so how come you're suppressing the vote? You know, is winning more important than your soul? You're asking people to ask those questions. Now, people have been resisting those questions for 150 years and then along before that, before the civil war. So we got to understand then, these are pretty deep attachments. If people have created workarounds from having to work those questions, um, people have worked really hard to create theologies in church to validate the system um, and, and all sorts of other kinds of mindsets and philosophical assumptions. Uh, including distortions of biology that would say that some people are are more fit than other people to govern uh, so what are we asking people to do? Well, we need to disaggregate the white community. Some people in the white community um, are recent immigrants, so their work ha- less it it calls up less uh, a challenge to their loyalties. They don't have a problem feeling loyal to their parents or grandparents or ancestors who taught them a way of life. They don't have a loyalty to their preacher who taught them how to understand God's word, you know? But they're nevertheless beneficiaries. Simply by being white, even if you're a recent immigrant, as I am, my mother grew up in Nazi Germany uh, and she came here in 1938. But I grew up as, a, you know, the wealthy son of a neurosurgeon who he grew up poor, you know, um, on uh, the west side of Chicago, near Garfield Park. Uh, but, uh, but he got himself an education and ended up becoming a brain surgeon and then raised uh, the four of us, three boys and a girl, you know, he, um, with a lot of opportunity. And I never had to walk out, out the door worried that I was going to be in danger. You know, and my uh, my sister felt a little bit more in danger just because particularly as a teenager, you know, just because she was a girl and girls are much more vulnerable than boys just from the gaze of of men. Um, But we didn't have to we didn't have to have, uh, you know, I I don't I didn't have to teach my boy like you've had to teach your sons to be careful uh, when they walk out. Um, I can walk out of my door in Harvard Square looking like a slob when I want to. But my black colleagues nearly always dress well. That's their coat of armor. So that it, it it protects them, you know, because they they will be treated like a more, you know, kind of solid citizen if they if they're dressed in a coat and tie.
2: Yeah.
1: The men. So what's the work of white people? So one segment is the beneficiaries. Okay. <clears throat> Getting people to simply understand what it means to be of privilege and then um what's your job then in uh in being able to uh rework the internalizations Mm. of uh entitlement
3: because one of the things that happens when you're when you're privileged is
1: you begin to believe you deserve what you have you know you work hard you get educated and you begin to believe you deserve what you have. But, and it's, it's true, in part, you deserve what you have, but in part, you're just lucky. You happen to be born into that family and with a particular color of your skin that gave you extra benefits, that gave you advantages. So you didn't earn at all by, by any means. You know, you had particular uh, advantages. So if that's true, then, if I didn't really earn it on my own, then... It You know, it calls me to understand myself differently
2: mm.
1: as this particularly lucky person. Now, what do I do to share that good fortune with other people who aren't born that way into that mm. kind of setting? So that's the segment of the white community that is privileged, but um, uh, doesn't have a deep root in the American historical, you know, uh, narrative. But then you have a large segment of the American public that does have deep roots here, that goes back here many generations, and where the assumptions of entitlement are deeper, and for some people, where the assumptions of racism are, uh, are, um, were taken in with their with the uh, with their mother's milk. You know, the grandfather that they loved, who taught, who played ball with them, taught them. About so many things. Took them, took them, taught them Bible, taught them how to think about life. Uh, uh, kept faith in them when they, you know, get into trouble. Um, as a as a young white boy, uh, now comes of age. That person is now a man, and his grandfather's passed away. And so now you're coming uh, up to him and saying, "Listen, white person, you know." Uh, Uh, you got to rethink about your uh, racist assumptions. What does it mean when I'm saying that to him? What's the ask? Well, the real ask is you're asking that person to go into his heart and have a conversation with his grandfather where he says with his grandfather, grandfather, you taught me so much wisdom and you loved me so beautifully. But you also taught me these things that I have to now start questioning because I think maybe you taught me some things that are really false and that actually are bad. So, you know, I, I, I honor 95% of what you gave me, but there's this 5% stuff that is bunk and I, and I, 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 I've got to discard it. Now that, that emotional work of renegotiating a loyalty, as I've been Mm. calling the work of renegotiating a loyalty to an ancestor or to people in your, in your living community who are gonna to say to you, wait a second, what happened to you? You know, you're contaminated. Who have you been talking to? And now you, be, now you begin to strain those, those primary relationships with friends, with family, with community, who say you're not one of us anymore. Now you're asking, and I, and I think we have to challenge white people all over America to do that hard work of figuring out how are they gonna lead and challenge even their own friends, family, community, how to renegotiate those loyalties, how to tolerate a strained relationship where they don't cave back in, but where they keep speaking, but in a way that's heartful. Listen, listen, I'm still your, listen, mom, I'm still your still your son. You know, I'm still your boy, dad. You know, I mean, don't, but um, listen, you know, don't keep me away from Thanksgiving. Don't keep me away from, from the family table, you know, but but still, when you talk that way, I'm going to tell you that I find it problematic. Now let's pray, yeah. you know, or whatever it is. So so that the the complexity of our relationships, you know, um, uh, enable us to conserve rather than write people off one way or another. So we're not mm-hmm. drawing a bottom line on people. And we're asking white people then to not draw a bottom line on their ancestry because their ancestry wasn't all bad. It, per, it perpetrated evil, but it also perpetrated goodness. You know, there was love, there was care, there was education, there was knowledge, you know, and, and so it's, it's engaging white people in those different kinds of work, the renegotiating of loyalties, the uh, renegotiating of their identities of uh, privilege, and the uh, uh, the disproportionate advantages they've been given and, and then the assumptions of entitlement that they mm-hmm. carry with those advantages. And, right. and I think then, and you, you got a sense when Martin Luther King would speak or people in his movement would speak, uh, which uh, was also my movement coming of age, um, you got a sense that he had both a challenge
3: and compassion for uh white people. Hmm.
1: And uh that's hard to achieve. Cuz it's hard to have compassion for uh perpetrators of uh aggression. Um but uh I don't think I don't think simply taking power has worked. Cuz we did that in the 60s, you know? And uh, the Voting Rights Act of '65, and and all it did was generate more workarounds and people waiting their turn. So here we are again. So we need we need to do more than simply you know reverse who's up and who's down. We need to do something much deeper in the evolution of our political culture or our identity as individual human beings, white, and and then. Black and across other ethnicities.
0: Yeah, I have I one more one more question. I can't believe how fast this time has gone and how many more questions I have to ask. But I, you know, we've talked a lot, or you know, this this last conversation was really on sort of movement building and what's required to make kind of scalable change. I would I would say, and uh, it brought up for me a story in uh, or an example in leadership in the line. And what um, I'm gonna try and articulate as um, folks that are working to be change agents in organizations that they're in now. Yes. That, you know, there's not just the loyalty to your ancestry, but there's a loyalty to institutions. Yes. And that you're coming up against these institutions saying you've actually have created some harm. Yeah. I wanna make change. Yes. And the example in the book was, I think, a black man that was hired in a museum To do some work and bring in, you know, younger kids of color into the museum. It it went largely unsupported, so it was a stated goal, right? It was good intention, but the organization, that museum, did not create the the structure, the expectation, the support. So it became a tokenizing exercise. Yes. And so, can we can we um, maybe provide some insight or support? To folks that are dealing with those tensions that are existing in many of our institutions um, right now, faced with all of all of everything that we're faced with, it's more it's more um, intense now. It's always kind of been lurking, but it's way more intense now.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a, a great question. I mean, to really do justice, we'd need to take different cases and sort of analyze because each yeah. you know the devil is in the details and leadership is practiced. You know, with real people in real situations and the relationships and the politics and the issues are different. And then, But as a general proposition, I think it's really important to know that the word token has the same root as the word teacher. And it's really hard to be a token. But it's got to start someplace. And it, it starts with somebody entering an environment that's different than other people and is raising challenging questions. They're not only different. They wouldn't be in that environment if they didn't also share, you know, a lot of cultural DNA with that institution. But there's some elements of that cultural DNA that they would say need to change, you know, and that's partly why they're hired, because some people in the institution know we need to change. But when it really comes to looking at what it's going to require, what it's going to cost, what the ask is, what the losses are they begin to then resist. You see the, the ambivalence. Yeah, we want to change, but no, not if it's gonna cost us that. And I think what tokens, people who are, in, who are introduced initially all alone, isolated, and that's why we might call them tokens, or maybe there's uh, just a very small handful in a large institution. Um, they're, they're a manifestation of that organization's mixed um, motivations, mixed ambitions and i think we we have to have clear eyes about the nature of the resistances that ambivalence um but and and keep but also not get cynical that people didn't mean it you see people yeah. people meant it but not at that cost like if you could find a way to get a lot of black kids in this museum without causing us to change anything else that'd be great but but it's actually going to cost us to reallocate some resources and change some of the way we do exhibits, and you know, change the way we speak to people, change who gives tours. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to do a whole variety of things. oh well, now if it's going to cost us that,
0: yeah. So so what you're what you're suggesting is that you have to basically hold both troops, right? Like there's, right? There's both right. the intention and the resistance, the resistance to what they said. Right. And both things are true. It doesn't make it disingenuous. It means that they don't have the organizational behaviors and supports to reinforce it. And what you're actually managing is those senses of loss and loyalty. And
1: exactly. So that the, the first task, then if you are the first token before you begin to build some more power by having a, a larger coalition of your, kind of person in that organization uh is diagnostic and it's to figure out you know the nature of the mixed mode the 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 high aspiration on the one hand we 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 have these values we'd like to realize those values but we're also pulled in 16 other directions and the other 16 other directions are attached to real people members of the board of director people in the community you know, uh, various traditions um, that are part of our identity. And and so one has to do the diagnostic work of really understanding the complexity of those different um, uh, values and interests and the people to whom those, and the people who represent those values and interests, which would be the politics of those cultural uh, or institutional interests. That diagnostic work is really important. so. You know a lot of people who enter as a token they're and I had a case of this in my class just you know recently you know they they go in with it they think they have a mandate, mm. which is always a mistake, like um Barack Obama made that mistake when he entered office. he thought he had a mandate. nobody's got a mandate you know uh um, people all so they people often go in and they they start being an advocate of something right away rather than okay now let me go on a listening tour let me not advocate anything let me really try to understand and honor the complexity of what's here and the fact that what's here obviously wants somebody in here wants to change otherwise i wouldn't be here you know they wouldn't have hired me if so but now let me just listen you know because the the change again has to be wedded to what will also be conserved. So if you go in and you're only talking about change, you're going to generate an immune reaction. Right. Generating- so you get
0: marginalized if you're going in with the mandate.
1: Exactly. You, if you, you think build you power
0: and influence
1: if you build a base. That's right. But also a base that can speak to all the values that you're going to honor and conserve in that institution. Because you wouldn't have joined it if there wasn't also a lot of value in that institution, be it a museum or the police force or, an edu- or the educational system. I mean, you'll believe in education or you believe in, 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 in various ways to maintain the public's um, safety. Uh, but on the other hand, you wanna change things. So uh, when you go in as an advocate, you, you, you don't listen for the potential, you don't identify all the potential allies because uh, you tend to write off the people who aren't immediately on your side. And you end up building a narrow coalition at best. So again, I think uh, if you approach it as a teacher, the first thing a teacher needs to do is learn about his or her students. Who's sitting in front of me? Different students need to learn differently. I need to know where they're at before I really know how to teach them. You know, and a, a really good teacher is adaptive to each student, needing to learn something different. Just like a great coach, like Phil Jackson, you know, would say some coach some players need to be handled with a uh, you know soft with a soft touch, and others need to be treated with a two by four and hit over the head. And you want to treat each each player differently because they have different needs. Same thing with a great teacher in a classroom. And same thing then if you're the teacher entering into an environment that has asked you to teach but is also going to resist the lessons because the lessons are going to require the renegotiating of some of their loyalties and relationships and it's going to require an evolution over time. See, if you're a teacher and you know that you're in the education business, then you're going to realize that people can only learn so much so fast. Mm. And you're, you're pacing and your sequencing will be adaptive to their ability to absorb the change. But if you go in as an advocate and you think, well, this is just about you know, figuring out how am I gonna come up with a coalition to now to change the dominance pattern. Now we're gonna dominate and they're gonna not dominate. Then there's no learning happening. You know, it, it, you, uh, uh, and, and really desperately what we need in our communities is uh, a much deeper set of learning processes where people refashion elements, not the totality, but elements of their identity. What what does it mean to be an American, white, black, or 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 Indian, or Muslim, or Native American, or whatever? What does it mean to be an American? And we're in that work of uh, refashioning that identity. Not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but recommitting ourselves to what's essential and precious in our being. Uh, and, uh, and that work is going to take our
3: lifetimes. <laughs> Head <laughs>
1: drops. <laughs> I mean, uh, we have to have a stomach for heartbreak. Yeah. Leadership requires a uh a, the ability to have a breaking heart over and over again and stay in the game and not lose faith that's why it's so important to have practices and sanctuaries and confidants who will pump air back into your water wings when you feel like you're drowning
3: mm-hmm.
1: when your heart's so broken that you just can't do it again
3: you know uh uh moses yeah.
1: moses got to the promised land in the first 18 months and he sent scouts into the promised land and the scouts came back and said, you know, uh, God's been watching over us for the last 18 months here in the desert. 12 to 18 months. We don't know exactly that the Bible doesn't give us exactly. Uh, but, you know, we just we just went into that land and we saw armies and and people and these soldiers, they look like giants and we're going to look like grasshoppers in their eyes because we are grasshoppers in our own eyes.
2: Mm.
1: So take us back to Egypt. 10 out of the 12 scouts said, take us back to Egypt. And then they frightened the, they frightened the, you know, the, the multitudes who then pleaded to Moses, take us back to Egypt. We would rather be secure in slavery than risk risk uh, dying in the, in the promised land. And at that point, Moses went into despair. In the Bible, it says he fell on his face, he and his brother Aaron. They fell on their faces in front of the multitudes, like publicly. Now, falling on your face in Hebrew means you're crying. Mm. It's like you're in despair. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long it took him to get up. We don't know if it took a day, a week, a month, you know, or six months. But when they finally got up, they finally discovered, wow, I thought the hardest part of their job was just getting these people out of Egypt into the Promised Land, and now I realize that was the easy part of the job. Now the hard part of the job is how are we going to turn a community of people who are used to being dependent into a self-governing community, who are used to having faith in a, in a, in a king, a pharaoh, into a people that can have faith in a God that you can't see, you know, and and that. Meant that they had to commit themselves for the rest of their lives. So for the next thirty-eight and a half years, they weren't lost. They knew exactly where they were. These were ancient trade routes from Africa. We all we all came out of Africa. You more recently, me, you know, further back in time, but we are, we're all Africans. We all came out of Africa along those trade routes. So, you know, by the time Moses was on those trade routes, three thousand years ago, they had already been trafficked for 50,000 years. So. He knew exactly where he was. Uh, he wasn't lost, uh, but it, it took it took another thirty eight years to develop the um, to evolve the uh, the community into and into a, a community that could s- govern itself and have faith in itself and 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 faith in uh, a higher set of laws and a higher set of power. Mm. So, so the story I think, is. is I, think, I think we gotta have, <laughs> we gotta have ways to help each other keep faith uh, and know that despair just comes with the. Uh, it just comes with the enterprise of leadership.
0: You know, it's something uh, very freeing about you know leadership and heartbreak and despair. And I don't think that when um, people aspire to be in leadership, they see that as par for the course. But there's something around identifying that it just is and that um, there's still opportunity in that there's still practices to to move through it. And I think the the story um, also really supports. That it's it's a long game, right? Like, you know, sometimes I think we don't see all of the ways in which we're evolving because we're only looking for the big win at the end but all of that that learning all that evolution that occurred over those 38 years right that you you often don't see it or you feel like you're 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 in despair because it it's not as big as you envisioned it's not as right. quick as you hoped um you know people aren't buying into it in the way that that you perceived your leadership would just magically move right um yeah yeah really super helpful i feel like i had a bit of a, a masterclass at a time that was certainly Needed uh, to reset for me. Um, I thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Shonda. Let me say one more thing,
1: and that is that uh, one of the things I have learned just in the last few years, in part from Cornell West and and my wife in our conversations, is uh, I never really understood the degree to which Black people have been holding the hope uh, in our country. Uh, more than anybody else. And I, I never understood the degree to which any white person seeing any black person on the street really ought to stand up and cheer or bow down and in reverence at the at the uh, the faith and the, the faith and the heart that it takes to be a black person in America, holding on to the dream of uh that we're um, all created equal. And and uh and, and even though, even though, in their heart of hearts, they know, uh, will it ever be real in my lifetime? And that question, will it ever be real in my lifetime? To imagine living a slave in in 1600 or 1700, and knowing it is, you know, maybe I can keep praying it'll be over in my lifetime, but it may never be. And how many more lifetimes will it take? And 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 not to lose faith. And find the resilience. I, I think when white people begin to appreciate how black people have have represented the soul of our nation, we will then turn around and ask you, can you teach us? How did you remain faithful? How do you keep resilient? How do you stay in the game? Teach us about what leadership is really going to require to work the the deepest challenges that humanity will be facing over the next hundred years. You teach us.
0: Thank you for for seeing me, for adding that, for recognizing uh, the pain, the sacrifice, the aspiration, the frustration (laughs) with all of that. I mean, I could literally probably be in tears uh, by that because it's not very often that and experiences affirmed and seen in the way that you uh, just communicated that. So thank you. That was a gift.
1: I mean the dignity. Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for, for uh, introducing me to your show. And it's such a pleasure to get to begin to get to know you.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I hope you have a fantastic weekend.
1: Thank you. All blessings.
0: That's Ron Heifetz and Shonda Smith-Baker. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda
1: S. Baker. This is Sue pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank
3: you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.